Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. We have talked about sports quite a bit over the years on this podcast. And definitely we have talked about concussions and the most common athletic injuries in teens. And we've reviewed the many benefits of participating in sports for kids and for teens. Well, today we're going to expand our discussion on sports and talk about the importance of nutrition in athletes and what can go wrong if athletes do not supply their bodies with the nutrition that it needs. We are so excited to be joined by Dr. Marcy Faustin, a sports medicine physician here at UC Davis. Dr. Faustin was a Division I track and field athlete, a gymnast, and a volleyball player, and she's now associate team physician for the UC Davis College Athletics team and the co-head team physician for the USA Gymnastics Women's National Team. Dr. Faustin, thanks so much for joining us today on Kids Considered. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be here, and I loved listening to the podcast. Oh, we're glad to hear that. Can you tell us um, a little bit about your background as an athlete? I mean, it sounds amazing in your journey to sports medicine to get you to the position that you're in now. So I grew up playing sports all my life. My father or poppy, um, they immigrated from Haiti, and his rule was no one could come home after school. And then if you got a job, then you can choose to work or do sports. And so that's how I got involved in sports, which, you know, takes many years after your parents tell you something to be grateful for the advice they gave you. Um, And so I grew up um, playing volleyball. I played gymnastics. um, I ran track and field. I was a high jumper and a sprinter. And I also did club volleyball and I did club gymnastics. So lots of sports growing up, um, which I really loved and still friends with those teammates that I had many, many years ago. And then from there, I knew I wanted to become a physician because my mother was a home health care nurse and she used to take us to see patients with her. I have three sisters, which I'm sure you can't do nowadays. Um, But back then we were allowed to go and inspired by that. And so when I went to college at Loyola University, Chicago, I was thinking about doing nursing versus becoming a physician, and they told me I couldn't do nursing because of my scholarship and my track schedule. So then I was like, I guess I'll just do a physician. (laughs) And then the reason why I became a family medicine, sports medicine physician, I am forever grateful to Dr. Niru Jayanti, who was my team physician when I was at Loyola Chicago. And one day he was looking at my knee or some sort, and I said, what do you do? What's your job? And he said, come with me. He took me to his family medicine clinic. He took me to rounds with the residents. He took me to teaching with the residents. And he was a family medicine, sports medicine physician. And I still see him every year. And every year I tell him, thank you for, you know, almost 20 years ago, inspiring me to follow this career. It's an amazing journey that you've had. And you continue to work with college and high school athletes. And I'm sure you talk about like that critical piece that nutrition plays in their overall well-being, but also their performance as an athlete, right? So I'm curious how you counsel athletes about maintaining proper nutrition. And I guess, is it different if they're active in their sport season, when they're outside of their sport? I think nutrition is so important, so critical across all patients. And even within medical school, we don't learn much about it, right? And right nowadays, there's so much social media, you have to determine 
what can you follow and what can't you follow? And so I really try to counsel those um, patients and the parents about making sure you're just eating enough. The far majority of those that are falling into this low energy balance where they're just not providing enough nutrition for the activity they're doing, it's just inadvertent. They just don't realize that, hey, I'm going from school to my sport. Maybe I get home really late, really late, and you didn't have a snack or you didn't have enough nutrition for that day. So I really try to counsel on making sure we're eating breakfast. You know, even if, you know, as we know, lots of kids don't want to eat breakfast, but getting them to eat something small to really start that metabolism, making sure they have snacks throughout the day, and then making sure they're eating their three meals throughout the day. And I try to tell them, if you have a sporting event or any type of after-school event where you're going to be late for a meal, make sure you have a snack with you that's always in your bag so that you can continue to provide nutrition for your body. So if athletes don't consume adequate calories and they're expending a lot of calories because they're exercising and they're performing at a high level, then there can be complications. And this syndrome is called relative energy deficiency in sports. And you might see the abbreviation RED hyphen S. So this is related to what listeners may recognize as the female athlete triad. So can you tell us a little bit more about this and about these, are these separate entities or are they the same thing and how they're related? So both the female and male athlete triad, along with relative energy deficiency in sport, which I was recently at a conference a couple of months ago, and they're coming out with a new statement and saying that it's going to be R-E-D with a small s, so everyone pronounces it REDS. The cornerstone of these entities is that there's not enough energy within the body. So we say that there's low energy available to the body for it to do its basic functions. So the way I explain it to parents is simple. What you put in your body, what you're eating, and then what energy you put out. So that includes the sports or the practices that you're doing. But when I think of my collegiate athletes who are biking to get to class, walking many, many steps to get to class, that's included in that energy output. And what you have available is how much energy you have available. And so when we're at low energy, it can affect the body in different ways. So the female athlete triad really speaks into three main parts for this, which was first coined in 1992 with the latest update in 2014. So it's, do you have low energy balance? Are you not eating enough for the amount of energy you're putting out? Do you have abnormal menstrual cycles, whether that's you're getting your first menstrual cycle late or you got your menstrual cycle and then it changes? Maybe it's not coming every month. Maybe it's now every two months or three months, or maybe it's much lighter than it was before. And then we think about our bone health. So do you get bone stress injuries or stress fractures, some may have called it? And those three entities together can be secondary to the low energy balance. Now, the relative energy deficiency in sport, which was coined by the International Olympic Committee in 2014 with an update in 2018. But what it did was it encompassed the female athlete triad and expanded on the different organ systems, such as your GI system. Do you have kids that are complaining like I'm feeling really bloated or I'm feeling constipated or I just always have belly pain? Do you have headaches all the time? Are you noticing a mood change where maybe they're feeling a little bit more down or more irritable? It can affect your iron levels. So we know that both entities, the female athlete triad and REDS, can affect all the different organ systems. And the cornerstone is just not having enough nutrition for how much energy you're putting out. 
I think, you know, it's interesting because it was always kind of thought of as like a, a female thing initially. And I think that's where the issue came, right? And they had to redefine it because so much of it was based on that menstrual irregularity. Correct. And just in the summer of 2021, they came out with the first statements about male athlete triad because we know that men are as affected, not at the same rates as women, but they're also affected by this syndrome and these disease processes. And it may look a little bit different for those men, especially when they're in a social media world and pressure to maybe look very muscular, you know, or to be as strong as possible or to be as thin as possible. And so we don't want to miss those men that may be falling into that category and making sure we're asking them those questions, too. So you highlighted sort of the the things that it encompasses, which would be low bone mineral density, low energy expenditure, maybe some of those headaches, belly, belly symptoms, change in the menstrual cycle. Is the, Are these the things that parents are going to see initially if they're worried about their athlete having something like REDS or the female athlete triad? Or are there other key diagnostic features? It's a great question. I think the it's a hard diagnosis because it is a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning we're making sure there's nothing else going on in the body. And then when we've ruled out all the other things, we realize we just need to um, increase our energy. But for parents, what they may notice is maybe their child is training and they're training really hard, but they're still not getting better at the same rate at the, as the other kids on the team. Or say they're running on a track team and their times are slower, even though they're training as hard as they have been, right? That might be signs that maybe they're not doing as well as you think that they should be for the energy and the practice that they're putting in. Another may be the mood changes, right? Especially now everyone's going back to school. So we know with any change, um, any change in environment, it can be a difficult task. But if you're starting to notice maybe your child doesn't want to go to practice anymore, or maybe they're not as excited about their sport, or they just seem a little bit more irritable than you've noticed. For women, it's nice because you can say, are they still getting their menstrual periods? You know, that's something that you can teach them. There's many apps on the phone and have those kids just track it. It should be coming about every month or so. And if it's changing, let mom know, let dad know so that they can go and see their doctor. Or all females should get their first menstrual cycle by the age of 15. If they're not getting their menstrual cycle and they're 15 years old, that's a time to make an appointment with your doctor and let's see why and let's try to analyze those things. Is this more common at certain ages, like for preteens or teens or high school or college? Or when would we expect this to present most often? Most of the research is done within the high school athletes and then at the higher level collegiate And then we have our Olympic level athletes, our professional athletes, which some can be young, like the gymnasts I take care of. Some are 12, 13, 14 years old. But what we know with the disordered eating or the eating disorders that may be the start of this disease process is that the highest risk of when that starts is during adolescence. So when these kids are hitting puberty and appropriately so, they're having many changes within their bodies also cognitively, psychosocially. But when they're having those changes, it can be difficult. And so that may be a time where those habits of eating disorders may present itself. And so that's really a time you want to be um, mindful to pay attention and to ask those questions and having those family meals and making sure that everyone understands the importance of being together, the social time together, and then having a positive relationship with food. 
And I think it's important even just me thinking about it because I've been doing so many sports physicals right now. I'm a general pediatrician, like everybody going back. And of course, we always ask about history of concussions and chest pain and fainting with exercise. But I don't think even I have spent enough time talking about like the nutrition piece of things and how important that is. I just don't think it's something that was built into our routine sports physical. I agree with you. It wasn't until my sports medicine fellowship after my family medicine residency that I knew really about this disease process and the importance of asking those questions. And they can be simple. You know, how many meals are you eating a day? How many snacks are you eating a day? And I think it's also important to ask how many days a week are you practicing and for how many hours? Because some will say, oh, yeah, I'm on the softball team, you know, and then they're also playing two different club softball teams, right? And the hours add up. And so really having an understanding of how much they're exercising and then asking about their nutrition and asking about their menstrual cycles. Are they normal and have you had it? Are there certain sports that put athletes at an increased risk for developing REDS um, or the female athlete triad as opposed to other sports? Yes. So it's typically those aesthetic sports or the sports in which your body composition may play into how you're evaluated for that sport, such as figure skating, ballet, dance, gymnastics, and then runners is the other big category with that. Now, other sports such as weight cutting sports like wrestling, right? It's uh, up and down. Wrestlers can start very young, which is great for them, but really understanding and having support and professional support when possible about when you should be cutting weight, how much weight can you cut, and when is it safe to do those things? You know, you've talked about, um, we've talked about snacks and making sure that um, kids have some sources of energy if they do skip a meal. But I'm thinking of a lot of the snacks that are out there are, are, are unhealthy, right? I mean, they've got like all sorts of preservatives, they're they're high fat, um, you know. They're... You wouldn't recommend a bag of hot Cheetos before <laughs> practice? <laughs> Can you just talk about, you know, the trying to find healthy snacks or appropriate snacks for kids to have on the go? First and foremost, it has to be what the kid likes and what they're going to be willing to eat. So I think for the families, trying many different types, take them to the store with you and try to go in the healthier section of the bars and the snacks there and have them choose it for themselves. Because if they're interested in eating it, then they will continue to make it a habit versus when mom or dad says you have to eat this. It's in their bag. They can say whatever they want with regarding that. I try to tell parents 80-20, really all my patients, 80-20. So 80% of the time you do the good thing, you eat the good snacks. 20%, if you're into your flaming Hots today, that's also okay, right? It doesn't have to be all or nothing. But I think making those decisions together and getting in that aisle in the grocery store so that they can make those decisions for themselves. When we have a suspicion that an athlete has this, like with all of the things you mentioned, and they come in to see me or to see you, what is the typical like medical assessment or workup that they would get at that point? So first thing, like everything else, getting a, a good thorough history about why they're coming in, what's their symptoms, or it might be their sports physical. And then you want to know how much exercise they're doing, how much sport they're doing, making sure they at least have one day off a week. It's not uncommon that kids are playing seven days straight. One day off for everyone is very critical. Then you want to know about their menstrual history, their injury history. Have they had other bone stress injuries? Some may have been diagnosed by a doctor. Others, 
are, are not always as fortunate to be able to go to the doctor every time they're injured. So making sure that we ask about those things in the past. Um, you want to know about the family history. And then we're doing a good getting their vitals, looking at their BMI, seeing their growth chart, making sure they're not falling off of that growth chart, and then doing a good thorough physical exam. After that, because this is a diagnosis that we're coming to after we excluded all the other processes, is typically we'll get blood work. We look at their blood counts, their kidneys, their livers, take a look at their hormones, and do that thorough evaluation. After we get that information back, we can put the picture together, talk with the family, and really the the main treatment plan for this is how do we increase our energy? So it has to be on one part of the equation. You either increase how much you're eating or you're putting into your body, or you decrease how much exercise you're doing in order to get that improved energy balance so that that patient or your child can feel a lot better. Now, what happens if we don't suspect this and the parents don't see it, the kid doesn't see it, the, we don't work it up? What are the complications if it's untreated? My soapbox is always regarding uh, eating disorders, and especially anorexia nervosa, where you're restricting food, is that it's the number one mortality rate of all psychiatric diseases. So if somebody has bipolar, somebody has schizophrenia, those with anorexia have a higher rate of dying. And so we want to making sure that we're evaluating those vitals, making sure that we're being aware of their nutrition and the habits that that athlete or the patient may be having with that. And then what we can also see is the far majority, 90% of your bone is developed and as strong as it's going to be by the age of 20 to 30. So after that, that's all you get, right? And so Earlier in the age, you can see that there can be athletes or patients with low bone mineral density, truly in the osteoporosis range, which I'm sure the parents have heard of this term, and I've seen it in 18, 19, 20-year-olds, or I can see them later in my clinic when they're 60, 70 years old and they go for a run and they have a small injury and, and they fracture through their back. And so we can see those consequences all along that pathway. And so that's why it's important to intervene. Biggest thing is providing education. So everyone's aware of how important it is, and then moving forward in that manner. I think you already highlighted on the treatment plan a little bit. So it's getting that energy level up, um, working on nutrition. So I wonder when you see these kids when they're young, does it include sort of that multidisciplinary team? So not just you, but maybe a dietitian to work with the family. How often are you seeing them back? Um, what does a typical treatment plan look like? So after we have gathered all of the information, I usually bring the parents and the athlete back so we can have a discussion about this. And usually my first couple of sessions is just education and getting their understanding. What is their experience? We have to be aware of there are food insecurity. Not everybody has access to food that they can have enough to supplement their body to play the sport that they need. But if that's their way out into college, then we have to help them work outside of the box to find them better solutions within that. So that's the first plan. The other is I try to be specific about writing a training plan for them. And you don't need to necessarily need to know the sport, but you just need to know the hours that they're doing. And let's say, where can we decrease these hours so that we can decrease how much energy you're putting out? And it might just be for a short time period until your body can catch up to this. A lot of times we try to get a dietitian or a sports dietitian involved. Again, that is a privilege, and not everybody has access to that. So helping to provide good information regarding nutrition, similar to what we have here at UC Davis, 
Team USA Nutrition has great information there that I like to give to my patients also, which is free to access. We have to get others involved, like an endocrinologist, an OBGYN, sports psychologist, a psychiatrist, whatever processes that we need, we want everyone on board so we can keep them as safe and as healthy as possible. So once you begin this multidisciplinary intervention, what's the timeline that you expect to see improvement in terms of weight, in terms of bone mineral density, and then return of normal menses in females? And it could change by individuals and the different processes affecting them. But typically, we say that most people's energy balance, like how they're feeling and their fatigue and their ability to train and get better, usually in a, a few weeks that can start to feel better. And it's just like those that have asthma, right? If you live your life not breathing well and then somebody gives you medicine, you're like, oh, I can be better, right? And that's the same thing with this. It's not going to be I took a medicine for my headache and now it's better. It's going to be over time you start to see these changes. And then within a few months, hopefully the menstrual cycle starts to get better. And that menstrual cycle, the reason why it's so important is we need the estrogen to help us build bones. And if we don't have our menstrual cycle and our estrogen is low, that is why our bone building is not as great as it can be. And that's the reason why we can start to get into problems with those bone stress injuries. And so we can see those menstrual cycle changes in a few months. The other soapbox, I guess, is we don't want to just start these patients or these athletes on birth control because they have abnormal menstrual cycles. That just masks the problem, and it doesn't help you build bone growth in that way. We want to figure out what that issue is. Menstrual cycle typically gets better in a few months, and then hopefully that bone health can get better in a few months to a few years. And that is the goal, that, that timeline. Um, and you touched on this a little bit in that we don't always need to completely restrict athletes from their sport. We might be able to pick a few days where they're training less. Um, this is something that I struggle with because sports are so important, you know, for mental health, for physical health, that I never want to hold a, a student from a sport unless it's something that re they really, really, you know, it's dangerous to them. So how do you go about kind of like return to play guidelines, working with coaches, um, working with families around that? It's challenging. And I think we're all on that same page, like you're saying. We don't want ever want to take something fully away. And I think it's how do we work together to create those? Sometimes we will do written contracts. And there is a, um, a risk assessment that we can do through the female athlete triad or the REDS side to see, are they in the red zone where we really need to restrict them significantly, yellow or the green zone? But typically what I like to say is, let's lay it out. Sometimes I'll have them go home and write out what day of the week it is, how much sport are you doing? So then when I see them next time or have them send me a message, I can say, okay, where do you think you can decrease your sport? And try to really put it on them because they're the ones playing. They know which practice is important. They know which games are important to them. And then we can work in that manner to slowly decrease that while they're doing the other effort into improving their nutrition or what other treatment plan may be necessary for them. But I agree, taking people away from sports, we know the negative impacts. As you both have said on your podcast many times, sports is so beneficial for many, many reasons. And so we want to allow them to stake with something that gives them the confidence to continue moving forward. So we've talked about the treatment plan, including nutrition and counseling and other issues. But 
what's even better is to just be aware of this and then to try to prevent it from getting so far um, that this develops. So what what can we do to um, help athletes prevent um, going into into reds? I think a great example is all these sports physicals that all of us are doing provide that little bit of education, you know, two, three minutes of making sure you're eating enough, making sure you're getting your normal menstrual cycle. If you're getting injuries or getting other symptoms, come back and see me. Have them make another appointment if they want more education within that. So I think that's the biggest thing. Having resources or nutrition resources you can give out um, to your patients when they come to see you so that that's just part of their handout. So they're aware of that. When people can have time to go home, read through, come up with questions, have them come back and see you or call in so that you can provide that education. And I think on the bigger scale, what we think about within the sports medicine world is how do we get that education to coaches who spend probably the most time with these athletes, maybe more than the parents in the school systems, right? And um, within different sporting organizations. So we can try to increase that awareness within that. And I feel like I have to ask you the question that I get from parents of athletes a lot in the office, which is about protein shakes and supplements, because a lot of them are doing this. And it's tough that AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, hasn't really taken a stance on it. But probably because like everything in kids, we don't have very much research behind it. But I'm curious what your spiel is and, and what you tell families about protein shake or protein bars or protein supplements. My number one thing is we know your body utilizes food much better than these supplements and these nutrients, right? And so my first question is why? Are they doing it because they're trying to increase their protein, their friends are doing it, they saw it online and it's going to make them faster? So figuring out the why they're taking them and then how can we provide education or find another route for them to get those same nutrients within that. The other thing I always tell them is we know supplements are not FDA um, regulated. And so we don't know what they're really actually taking. This is a spiel that comes naturally to me because for our Olympic athletes, they get drug tested. And so we don't allow them to take supplements or we discourage that because they can test positive for something that looks like it's just a little over the counter. But again, it's not regulated. So you don't actually know what you're putting in your body. So let's figure out a way that we can put it in naturally. And so I try to move in that direction. So Dr. Lena had asked your question, but I have to ask mine. You know, Simone Biles is an incredible athlete. She was recently in the news um, just this last week, I think. She was um, returning to competition in the U.S. Classic. We're recording this in um, August. And um, she's just amazing. What's she like in person? She's phenomenal. Her family is phenomenal. All the gymnasts of that level are absolutely incredible, really. They're thankful, they're grateful, they're inspiring, and they're just normal humans with uh, this little bit of <laughs> significantly excellent superhuman <laughs> skill. But she's truly amazing. Oh, so awesome. Well, you sound like you are living your dream career and, you know, I, I, I think I am too, but I mean, you must look back on those days as a gymnast and just be like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? And that is so amazing. It's really, really fun to talk to you today. So today we talked with Dr. Faustin, a family medicine and sports medicine physician at UC Davis, about relative energy deficiency in sports and the importance 
Mm-hmm. We discussed the female athlete triad, the inadequate energy and nutrition, um, the menstrual irregularity and its effects on bone health. And we talked about some of the warning signs of the conditions, which might be increased stress injuries, bone stress injuries, changes in your menstrual cycle, but even things like mood or GI upset. When you're seeing this, it's super important to bring it to the attention of your physician. And when you do, your physician is likely to do a workup to pay attention to the history, to the symptoms, the sport, the intensity, the menstrual history, take a look at the um, nutrition as well as injuries and the effect on bone stress, growth chart, physical examination, and maybe do some blood work um, looking at metabolism and um, hormones. Once it's identified, there'll be a multidisciplinary team with nutrition support, potentially counseling or emotional support, uh, endocrinology, and we'll all work to make sure that we can get this athlete back to sport um, with adequate nutrition, and um, it really takes that multidisciplinary team. And this is so important, not only in the short term, but really for long term, because it can have long term effects on bone health, including bone density and causing osteoporosis. Yeah, my husband is constantly telling me, well, now I'm 33, so he says I already missed my window of optimal. (laughs) He keeps saying, Lena, you have to start weightlifting with me. You already missed your optimal bone health window, Um, so we need to start doing squats right now. (laughs) So tell me, Dr. Faustin, have I missed my window altogether, or can I still develop a little bit of bone You can still develop it. You tell your husband you're going to (laughs) start... Today, tonight. Today, yes. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) Okay, well, this reminds me of a joke. Uh, Okay. Okay, so what is a banana's favorite gymnastic move? I mean, it has to be something with the splits. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I went really high level. I was doing, like, release skills. Oh my gosh. You know, your talk about the um, protein reminds me when back when I could run marathons and being a vegetarian with a bad diet, um, I was worried about protein intake. And so, you know, I I would get a protein supplement. And um, I think back then, I'm not sure if this is still true, but it was important to um, have this protein like right after the workout. And so I would go on the run and I'd cool down for about a half an hour. And then I'd mix this protein stuff, which was pretty vile. I can't remember what it was, but it's some vegetarian protein powder, mix it into water and I would choke that down. And I would run in the afternoon and I'd, I'd drink this and then I'd get, I'd, I'd get totally full. And then I wouldn't, then I'd make dinner and I wouldn't want to eat anything, nothing for dinner. And I realized, I don't, I'm not sure that this is like the best, the best plan at all. (laughs) I know. I, this is an on, I think this is just an ongoing conversation because I'm like, you should just like make a bunch of chicken breast. Like I'm always talking to my teens about this. I'm like, the protein from the real thing is so much better than your nasty like scoop of powder. Um, Yeah, I think this is just going to be, and just like you said, with social media, with all of this accessible information for all of us, right? We blame it on our teenagers, but let's be real. This is not something that's just affecting teenagers. This affects like across the lifespan. And so us as physicians, me for sure, I continue to try to educate myself about this and learn how to talk to them about other healthier ways to get in nutrition. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. 
You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.